Last week, we talked about the, the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, and we narrowed that down to the Pentateuch, the five books uh, that were written by Moses. And then at the end last week, we, we kind of narrowed it down even more to the book of Genesis. And now we're going to kind of start, start that process of walking through the book of Genesis, trying to get an overview, but at the same time, trying to dig a little deeper than maybe uh, your average Sunday school class goes. And so we're going to have some questions that come up today because we're, we're looking at a text that uh, in our culture is probably the most disputed uh, thing that the Bible says on its face. I remember very well uh, being a student at Sanford in a biology class and having the, the teacher start out the class by saying, um, I am a Christian. I've grown up in church. I've gone to church my whole life. Um, I wish that Genesis... Uh, one and two were accurate, they're just not. And I, I think that a lot of our kids, uh, what happens is, is we tell them, oh, people who believe evolution are stupid, and, and it's just a silly thing. Who, wh- what idiot would believe that we, we descend from monkeys? And then they go to college, and they have people who stand in front of them who are really intelligent, who have a really well-thought-out theory that they, they put in front of them, and we have done poorly, done a poor job of actually equipping them to deal with that. What do you do with the, the, the clear signs of microbiology, uh, microevolution that we see around us? Where, you know, a, a particular kind of moth changes into this kind, you know, with these kind of changes over time. And, and how do you deal with that? And so before we begin, I want to say there's, there's two books that, that I would recommend um, one is uh, by a man named Sailhammer. Dr. Sailhammer is uh, who I, while I was at Southeastern, took um, my Old Testament survey from. He is, uh, was also part of one of my uh, Hebrew professors. Very intelligent man. Uh, he wrote a book called Genesis Unleashed. Uh, Genesis Unbound. Um, it is really where I fall in the whole day-date, gap theory, all that kind of stuff. Um, the Sailhammer explanation of Genesis, which I'm going to go into tonight a little bit, but he does an excellent job of explaining that and, and we're, we're walking us through that. And then the other is Hugh Ross's uh, The Universe Explained, um, which does a, a good job from another angle. Uh, Dr. Sailhammer and, and Hugh Ross would disagree on finer points, but I think they both are men who love the Lord study his word and are trying to as accurately as they can uh, explain what God's word is saying. So let's dig in. First we want to take the first section uh, and again we're just kind of narrowing this down. We started out with the Old Testament, the Tanakh, then we narrowed down to the Pentateuch, then we narrowed down to the book of Genesis. Now let's look at Genesis 1 through 11. In that part of Genesis we see the origin of of nations. Now remember who our target audience is, who this book was written for and by, Moses wrote this book for a group of, of, of Jewish people who were wandering in the wilderness, and this is letting them know where all the nations around them came from. And so one of the reasons, I think, for some of the confusion in Genesis 1 and 2 is we forget the purpose that it was written for. Um, we sometimes are, are asking Scripture to answer questions that it's not meant to answer, and that we have to remember that the, the reason why this is given is to let those people who are good, God is transitioning them from slavery to, to a nation, to 
to let them know who they are, where they came from. Where did the people around you come from? The backdrop, uh, this is the, Genesis 1 through 11 is the, giving us the backdrop of God's special dealing with his people through the Abrahamic covenant. We said last week that the pinnacle of all of the, the five, first five books of the Bible is Moses on Mount Sinai. But you can't understand what's going on with Moses on Mount Sinai unless you understand what's going on with God picking a guy named Abram and saying, you go west, and him obeying. And then God saying, I'm going to bless you. From your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so all of the things leading up to that covenant are filling in who are the players that we're seeing here. It tells us where man came from. Um, one of the coolest stories I've ever heard uh, in my life was uh, I was work, doing a job back when I still worked in the computer world at Wake Forest uh, University, and um, I was with a group of guys who were also believers, and we were, we were uh, working in a, particular, in, a, in a science building, and there was a girl who was a lady who was a microbiologist, uh, and she asked, came, and it was me and another guy, and she said, can you all help me, by mo help me move this big microscope? And so as we moved the microscope, we started talking to her and uh, asking her if she went to church and try, just trying to talk to her about the gospel. And um, she, she said, yes, I'm, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. And so um, we, she ended up eating lunch with us, a group of five or six guys, and she, she wanted to share her testimony with us. And she had grown up in a part of China where, where uh, she, they were kind of in a rural area, and she said that every night when they would eat supper, her father would pray, if there's a God, we thank you for providing for us. And we pray that you would show yourself to us. And then they would eat. And so when she uh, got the opportunity to come work on her PhD in the United States, um, she thought to herself, well, I'm going to get the opportunity to try out some churches. And so uh, she visited all kinds of different religions and all kinds of churches because she didn't have that freedom when she was living in a communist country. And um, she had gone to a couple of Christian churches and she left there saying, this isn't the God that, that we've prayed to all this time. And she went to a Buddhist church and she left there and said, this isn't the God. And she went to this church and that church and she, she ended up going to a, just a small little uh, Christian church and um, the very first time she sat through a service, she ended up uh, telling someone there that she wanted to know more and she ended up getting saved and she immediately went and called her parents and said I found him and so she the God that she was praying they knew that there was a God they knew that this can't all be chance Romans chapter 1 tells us that all of mankind that creation itself proclaims that there is a God we should be able to because of creation figure out who God is but because we wear these blinders of sin, uh, there has to be special revelation for us to get it. And it starts out, like we said last week, with the presupposition that God exists, and we're introduced to who he is in this story. And so it tells us where mankind came from. And even, you know, we know instinctively as human beings that man is special in creation. No matter what everybody wants to say, I... I, I 
had someone one time say, I don't know how you can say that sort of a thing, because dolphins are just as smart as people. And I'm like, dolphins can be pretty smart, but I've never been to a dolphin city. I've never seen dolphins uh, writing letters. I've ne- yes, we know that there are some critters that are smart. I had a German shepherd one time that was too smart for his own good. He could unlock doors. He would bite on the doorknob and turn the doorknob, and we had a deadbolt that had a switch on it, and he would unlock the deadbolt and then unlock the do- lock. It drove me insane. He, he, and, but I never assumed that that dog had a soul because there's something distinctively different between the way an animal acts and the way a human acts. At the same time, I've met humans who, uh, because of disability or because of, of limitations, uh, were very limited. But I still knew instinctively that there was something different about that person. And so we know all that. And so it's important for us to understand where we came from. And this story lets us know that we are a special creation. That God created by voice everything that was. And when it came to man, he got down in the mud. In fact, in Hebrew, the word Adam means dirt. Um, There's a funny translation of the Bible that, that tries to you know, play a little bit fast and loose with things, but he, uh, in that translation, Adam is called Mudman. And that's a good, pretty good translation of what Adam means. We see uh, that, that man was originally related to his creator and the rest of creation. That when God made Adam, he had a relationship with the rest of creation and he had a relationship with God. We see why everything's messed up. If all we had was Genesis 1 through 11, we could know why bad things happen to people. We could understand that the problems that we see in this world are a result of a fall. That something is broken. And you know what? As humans, we know that instinctively. There is nothing that happens that drives that home more than being in the room when somebody goes home. Because once their soul leaves their body, you know it. There's something different. There's something missing. And there's something in our soul that screams, this is wrong. Anybody that's been around a friend or someone that they loved when they they have died. I don't even mean be around them. When you got the phone call that someone died... That ripping sensation. This is wrong. That something in your soul that rebels against that. Well, the Bible lets us know that death is abnormal. We aren't made to say goodbye. That's a result of things being broken. And we see how they got broken. We see that God has promised to preserve human life. That until the end... All that stuff that we read in Revelation last year, that humankind is left on this earth. God promised that with Noah. And we see that even after the flood, after the fall and after the flood, mankind still messes it up. And we talked about that a lot when we studied the book of Revelation. How no matter what circumstances man is placed in, we're going to mess it up. And that's an important thing because culturally... Our culture tells us the problem with, the, with a person who's broken is their environment. If we can only make the mankind's environment better, everybody will be better. 
Now, nobody says that out loud, but that's exactly what we say. The problem with, with people who do bad things is their childhood or the environment that they live in, the fact that they grow up in a bad neighborhood, the fact that they don't have money, the fact that they don't have access to these resources. That's why there's problems. Genesis 1 through 11 won't let us believe that because man put in the absolute best possible scenario messed it up. And that the problem is, is that we are broken. Now, we're drilling down more. We went from all the way out here down to Genesis 1 through 11. Now we're going go to go to our deepest point. Genesis 1 and 2. We have two accounts of creation. Uh, I think I told you, I saw a, a TV show a few weeks ago. Um, I was in a, a hospital waiting room. And a guy said, Genesis 1 and 2 are totally contradictory, and I don't even know how anybody can read them and say they're the same story. So we have two very clear, distinct accounts of creation. One, it starts in Genesis 1 and goes all the way to 2.4, and then from 2.4 to the end of of, uh, 2.25, it's detailed. Uh, So let's let's look about that. Critics claim that these two parts uh, had to be written by two different authors, because one of the reasons they say that is... A different name for God is used throughout. If, if you um, notice, um, in, if you t- open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and earth that were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. In any time in your English translation, when you see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D... That is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so throughout Genesis 2, the word that's being used for God, if you look in 18, it's Yahweh. In 16, it's Yahweh. In 21, it's Yahweh. If you look back um, in Genesis chapter 1, it's just capital G, lowercase o, lowercase d, because the Hebrew word that's used for God there is Elohim. And so... Textual critics will say that the Pentateuch was written by uh, J, P, D, and E. Those are who, who textual critics call the authors. J is the person throughout that used the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and then E would be the authors that use um, Elohim. P would be the priestly author that the laws, that there was an author who was a priest and he wrote those laws down. J-E-P and D is the Deuteronomical, Deuteronomical author who is recording uh, the part of the story after Exodus. Now, I, I would argue that, um, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that Moses clearly is taking other source material uh, at places and putting it in. For example, uh, the, the, book of Exodus, uh, the, the end of the story has Moses' body being carried off by the Lord. Moses didn't write that. So it's not, it doesn't undermine our belief that Moses is the author to, to believe that there were other people who wrote things and he's including that. Moses wasn't present when God said, let there be light. Somebody had to tell him that story. Or it had to be, Adam would have had to have told Seth who told, and then somebody along there wrote it down. Um, Jesus in Matthew 19, though, puts Genesis 1 and 2 together when he says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And so 
That takes where God in Genesis 1 says he made them male and female and marries it to Genesis 2 where it says, um, then the man said, this is the bone of last of, in verse 23, this last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So here Jesus smashes together a quote from Genesis chapter 1 with a quote from Genesis chapter 2 and says it's the same thing. So we don't believe that it's two different authors. We don't believe that they're contradictory. Jesus didn't believe that, and Jesus clearly says over and over that he believed that Moses was the author of the account. Has not Moses said to you? And I think if any, as we said last week, that if anybody would know who really wrote the book, it would be Jesus, because he was there. When somebody was handing Moses the rocks, it was Jesus. That was a Christophany. So, the difference in Moses' perspective can be easily changed with A, an understanding of the Hebrew language. It's very common in Hebrew storytelling to introduce things with a broad overview, this is what happens, and then drill down. It's very common to do that. And the author here, by changing who, how he's referring to God, is making a point between the two stories. Elohim is just similar to the word that we use for God. It's just a generic term for God. It's the God who created. He's saying that God is the one who did the creating. Yahweh is God's, first of all, it's his name name. God is his title. Yahweh is his name. Just like I might be pastor, but my, if, if, if I went home and Ann called me Pastor Tom, I'd feel pretty weird about that. So my name is Tom. If my mom didn't call me Tommy, I would feel strange about that because that's what she's called me ever since I was in diapers. So Yahweh is God's name. And so when the writer goes from Elohim, the creator God, to using his name, he's also showing us the covenant relationship between God and his people. Because the first time God ever told anybody his name was when Moses was standing at the burning bush. And Moses asked, Okay, when I go talk to him, who do you want me to say sent me? And he said, tell them Yahweh has sent you. Tell them that I am has sent you. And so the, Moses here is showing us the difference between, in chapter 1, God is that great creator God. And in chapter 2, as he is getting in the mud and making man, he's showing us that that's the same God that's taking you out of the, through this wilderness. It's very personal. He's using God's name. And again, remember who the primary, the audience that Moses was writing to is. Those guys need to know that the God who's leading them with smoke by day and fire by night can take care of them. And so that shift in names doesn't tell, signify to me a different author. I think we can clearly see that it's a shift in emphasis. And he's letting them know that the God that created you can also keep you. And it should be a reminder to us. Because Jesus, God's son, when he was being uh, tried, and he said, they said, um, are you the Messiah? And he looked at them and said, I am 
they knew what he was saying because they immediately tore their clothes and said, do we need to hear anything else? Execute him. And so Jesus laid claim to that very same name. So Elohim is the term for God as creator. Yahweh in chapter 2, God reveals himself as the personal God of covenant. And we see that in Genesis 12, 1, Exodus 3, 15. Although uh, in Psalms 96, Elohim and Yahweh are identified as the same person. So we can't get confused uh, and be polytheistic and think that we're talking about two different gods. I think one of my favorite things about the creation story is how we see the Trinity at work. God the Father is the originator of purpose. And all this is really spelled out in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all th- who, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. Now this is what he's saying. God decided he was going to create stuff. And then Jesus stepped out on the balcony of heaven, if you will, and spoke, let there be light. And then the Holy Spirit moved through creation. And so the Trinity is intimately involved in all aspects. The Father decided, the Son spoke, and then the Holy Spirit moved. We see in the text, it says, um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Notice the parallels of that with John chapter 1. I thought I'd put that in here. Guess not. Is it? I, I thought I had cut, I'd put John chapter 1 in there, but I, I didn't. Okay, so in John chapter 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life that was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so in both the creation story, in in Genesis 1 and John 1, we see this interaction between the Trinity. um, And we talked about, when we way back maybe two years ago when we talked about how we become, become believers, the same mechanism for creation happens with a new creation. The Father calls, the Son speaks, and then the Holy Spirit moves. And so the Trinity is at work, and the Holy Spirit keeps. Just like we see the Holy Spirit here hovering over the face of the deep, what keeps me being a believer isn't that I'm a good person. So that new creation works in the exact same inner working with the, the, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, all in agreement, all working together to recreate you. And that, that answers the question, because if the things of God are foolishness to those without Christ, then how do, do I ever get to a point to where I can hear the call of the Holy Spirit without just putting it aside? Well... 
The Father calls. The Son is the one who did the work that needs to be done. And then the Holy Spirit. First comes grace, for by grace are you saved through faith. First comes the grace for it to make sense to you, for you to feel that conviction, that drawing. And then comes faith. It's not by any works that we've done. It's by the fact that God's Holy Spirit enlightened us. He opened the eyes of our heart, and then we heard that call. And then we returned, called out. And so we see that same thing in creation. In the beginning, um, that phrase denotes a specific starting point. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever the phrase that's in there in Hebrew is, is, is there, it means it's something new is starting. In the beginning, when it started, there's no doubt that before that there was God. Uh, in the words of the Nicene Creed, there's never been a time when he was not. But there was a beginning to human history. And in that beginning, God. The phrase commences the history of God with his people, but also anticipates the consummation of that time. Already in Genesis 1, I love this quote by Dr. Selhammer. In Genesis 1-1, we anticipate the last days, and it fills the mind of the readers. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth implies that there will be an end. There's a pregnant idea throughout Genesis 1 through 11 that God has to come up with a solution. Man made the problem, God's got to clean up the mess. And so we already see an eschatology, a future things that's coming into play. Creation, last week I I defined this word, ex nihilio means out of nothing, uh, is not necessarily... Uh, in the phrase in the beginning, because the, in the beginning is used through, it, throughout the Old Testament. It doesn't necessarily mean out of nothing. Uh, but we know that in this particular case, this is the for real beginning. Um, and we know that from Hebrews eleven three, Colossians 1, 16. It's implied by the idea of in the beginning, but it's not necessarily there. Uh, but, but we know because this is setting up the story. The main word that's used throughout Genesis chapter 1 for create, bara, is always used in the Bible with God as the subject. Mankind never creates. We make. God alone creates. Because God started with nothing. I think the analogy that I used last week was if, I, if Ann said I wanted a nightstand, I would have to start with wood. If I'm going to build anything, it has. even if I'm, go, if I'm sitting down to write a book, I'm not doing that in a vacuum. I'm using material that's coming to my mind from other sources. But God and God alone creates. Uh, and this is for free, but uh, whenever it, he ends it, with, each little couplet is, um, God said, and it was good. Um, the Hebrew word for create is barah, and the Hebrew word for good or blessed is barak. And so there's a, there's a rhyme sequence going on here. He created it, it was good. He created it, it was good. So in, it's kind of like uh, roses are red, violets are blue. There's a rhyme pattern that's going on between Barah and Barak. Barah, Barak. Um, and so we talked last week, I, I said that Genesis uh, is very poetic. Um, there are five literary forms that are used in Hebrew, and all of them can be seen in Genesis um, and the way that they're written. So there's, there's epic tales 
Uh, we, we have that story in the story of Abraham. There are tragedies. We have that in the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's comedy in a style of comedy in the Hebrew Old Testament, and we have that in the story of Joseph. Um, I mean, if you just think about the story of Joseph and the way that that story is told, it, it would easily make a com comedy. Think about the fact that this guy is being hit on by a lady, and she grabs him, and he runs away from her, and he leaves his clothes, so now he's naked. I mean, that, is that a sitcom or not? I mean, so it's written in a com comedic form. And so the first chapter of Genesis is written poetically. It's written like a poem. And so we can see that in that, that word play. Um, the word for God's preserving action, where it says that he brooded or hovered, is repeated in Deuteronomy 32, 11, um, to show that God's brooding over his people. And it's the same imagery that Jesus used when he was looking over Jerusalem. That word where it says, and the Holy Spirit um, was hovering over the face of the deep, the Hebrew word there is of a hen bringing in her chicks to protect them. And Jesus said as he looked at Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you the way a mother hen gathers her chicks. And if you ever want to get pecked, try to take one of those chicks away. I'm just saying, that's for free. Okay, we see the Holy Spirit's movement throughout the, the Pentateuch, but especially in, in Exodus 31, we see the Holy Spirit guiding the work that was being done on the temple. And so we see the Holy Spirit continuing in the children of Israel's life to have that work. Now let's get into some of the crazy stuff or the difficult to understand stuff. Um, so there are competing interpretations on the time span of creation. So who here has ever heard of the term gap theory? So how much background do I need to get into? I see one person shaking their hand. Okay, so... The gap theory is saying this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Full stop. The earth was without form and void. They asked the question, why would God create something without form and void? And so there has to be a gap between um, chapter, verse 1 and verse 2. And so they guess or, or, or speculate that in that gap that God created and that Satan's fall occurred in that gap. That God created heaven and earth and then Satan fell out of heaven, and he fell to the earth, and in his fall, there was mass destruction, and so God came in afterwards and had to clean up the mess. And so that's why the earth was without form and void. Um, some, so that's the gap theory. There's, there's also the, the daytime uh, idea that, that there, we're looking at 12-hour periods of, of creation, and in between that are times of microevolution or that's that's more of a broad header we'll get a little bit deeper in that into Hugh Ross's theory that um, that that each day represents an a long period of time the calendar day which thinks that each one of those six days is 24 literal hours um, and then an indefinite era there uh, which some could call theistic evolution so that's saying that the writer here doesn't under, uh, know how long it was and that from looking at, at uh, light patterns that we see and we know the age of the universe to be, I think it's 6.8 billion years old. And so um, that each of those days are really just representative of 
the time frame. And so when God created the heaven and the earth, that would be representative of from the Big Bang until all the matter gathering together. Um, and so God was kind of overseeing that, but we don't know how long it was in each one of those epochs. And so uh, some of those would have been God setting in place the physical laws, the, the laws of physics, literally, and, and the, the you know, gravity and, and the way light photons travel and that kind of stuff. But we don't know each one of those are representative in that it's just an infinite period of time and we don't have any idea how, how much it is. I want to kind of drill into the idea of why, why I believe that the six days of creation here being described are six literal days. And I know there are people in this church that would disagree with me. Um, I personally believe that, that it is six literal days. Um, but I'm, I'm, it's really, it was really funny. When Hugh Ross was here speaking, um, he, he kind of laid this out um, and didn't use the cell hammer idea and and so i'm like well where 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 would i fit and he's like well i've never even heard, heard of that and i'm like well as far as i know most reputable theologians kind of lean toward cell hammers methodology and so um we i would believe that the six days described in creation are six literal 24-hour period days and i'm listing out why i believe that one is that uh nowhere else in the old testament is the word day with a number used when it's not one day. There's lots of times when the word that's translated here as day is used, such as, um, you know, the, the day of the Lord. It's referring to a large period of time. Or the day, the, the day of wrath, that's going to be, you know, five or six days. But whenever it's used with a number, like one day or two days or the second day, it always throughout the Old Testament, means a day. Um, a, whenever we study the Bible, we're looking for what's the clearest, simplest reading. God's not in heaven going, I'm going to really mess him up with this one. And so if it says it was one day, first day, he means it's a day, is my, my take. Evening and morning being added would describe a literal day. I, Hebrew, I, it's almost like God anticipated this argument and said, okay, I'm going to make this really simple for him. We had an evening, we had a morning, we had a day. So we're not talking about an era. We had an evening and a morning. Um, the application of the fourth commandment. If it wasn't six literal days, why would we be told to rest on the seventh day? And being told to take a literal 24-hour period to rest. That, to me, wouldn't fit if we were talking about epochs. Um, and Adam and Eve lived through the seventh day because after the seventh day, they fell. And so if you follow the reasoning of some that would say that each day represents a long period of time well it can't represent the seventh day because it says and god rested and adam and eve went and did this and then they fell so they lived through that seventh day there's necessary breaks between the days and what i mean by that is is that um god said let there be light and i I have no problem believing that when he said, let there be light, that that was the creation of not just light, but the idea of light. Because he creates the sun later. And so that is saying that the physical laws were created there in my mind. And the idea, the concept of light and darkness is being created. Um, and that he separated light and darkness. Um, and so if, if we, we have light, but we don't have a sun, we have 
we have water, but then sea creatures are created on day six. If you have long gaps between that, what's, it just doesn't fit into place. You can't have animals before grass if it's a long period of time or they're going to die. And so for it to fit into place, those the days, it, it would have to flow as 24-hour periods in my mind. Okay, the Bible describes that mankind in Acts 3, Romans 1, 1 John 3, Luke 1, Mark 10, Mark 13, G, people speak to the fact that man has been here since the beginning of time. So on day 6, God made man, and there wasn't a whole lot going on before that. My big problem, and, I, and I, when Hugh Ross was here, I told him, my biggest problem with his theory is, where did death come from? Because for his theory to work, animals had to die. Death hadn't come until Adam fell. For me, the book of Romans, it says, For by one man's sin, death entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed to all men, for all have sinned. So, how did the dinosaurs die? Because death hadn't came yet. That's, that's my primary issue with that theory. Um, so, a variation on this interpretation is the one that I, I personally believe. And, and I, this is the best description I can find of it. Genesis 1-1 involved the creation of the universe and the spirit world, perhaps over eons. So, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so, God set in motion the things that were created, but that the earth, the land... The critters, the, the plant matter was created in six literal days. Now, I'm, I wish this wasn't recording because this is Tom playing scientist, and I don't know, I'm not a scientist. And I, when I hear scientists try to step into theological study, I always go, you, you should stay in your field. So I'm going to try to do this. This is, this is how I kind of put this in my mind. And I hope that I, I'm making some sense. Right now, we can, we can look at, a, if you walk outside and look at stars, you realize that you are looking at some stars that aren't there anymore. They've blown up a long time ago because the time it takes for light to travel from the star to reach your eyeball. And so what's, what's actually going on with that star? If that star is 1.4 million light years away, it took 1.4 million years for that light to travel from the source of light to your eye. Like the, the sun that we see, I think it's six minutes it takes. So if the sun were to just all of a sudden disappear, it would take six minutes for us to realize it. It's hard for us to fathom that kind of distance. Could it be that if everything that's ever been is crunched down to, and I'm borrowing from the Big Bang Theory, and the gravitational pull with that, and then the time if God said, let there be a universe, and then poof, it's created. From the perspective of Earth, that happened looking backwards 6.8 million years ago. But if you were there, if your perspective is at the point of origin, then it just happened because of gravity, light, movement, all of that stuff in play. And so I, I really do think when you get the young Earth and the old Earth argument that when we die and get to heaven and we are like him because we see we, we as, 
see him as he is. And we know, we understand. We're going to say, yeah, we were both right. And we were just too dense as human beings to understand how it all worked. But that God, in Genesis 1-1, made everything. And how he did that, we don't know. But that the creation effort that we see, that the purpose of this story isn't to tell us how he made stars. His purpose isn't to tell us how he spun planets into their gravitational pull. His purpose is not to tell us how he made everything. His purpose is to tell us how he made where you live. Because the perspective of this story is from where we stand. And I, don't th- I think you have to get so crazy to get beyond it took six days. And evening and morning was the first day. That, but when we try to make the text answer something it's not meant to answer is where we get crazy. For example, in the book of Psalms, the Bible says that uh, David is writing a song about how the planets travel around the earth. And as the planets travel around the earth, God, you, you set their course and you're the one in control. And so the reason why the church argued with scientists when they moved from a earth-centric view of the universe to a sun-centric view of the universe was because they said, well, the Bible says in Psalms that the planets travel around the earth. But that's making that text speak to something it wasn't meant to text. David is writing about the fact, and anybody here who's ever spent a night in the woods has seen it, that through the course of the night, those stars move across the sky perspectively speaking, they do. You could go out there right now and take your phone, if you've got a, I think iPhone 10 or better, set it on time-lapse, set it on the ground, if you got away from any light pollution, and watch the stars move across the sky. And so, and I have been at times when I was up high altitude and, and you know, beautiful night, and watched and just been amazed how it almost feels like you can reach out and touch those stars as they are moving across the sky during that night. And David is saying, just like any human being who's ever done that, oh my gosh, this creation is so big. What am I, a little guy? It just feels so overwhelming. But then I remember that, God, you're in control of where those stars go. He wasn't trying to give us an astronomy lesson. He was trying to tell us that God's in control, and he was saying truth. And so we can't make Scripture try to deal with something that it wasn't meant to deal with. When the Bible says that the earth is God's footstool, David is not trying to make us think that God is reclined on Jupiter with his feet up on the earth. That's not the purpose of that. That's poetic language. And here, Moses is writing this story because he wants the children of Israel to realize you are not lost. You've just walked away from everything that you know. You've left a country where, yeah, I was a slave, but I knew where my next meal was coming from. And now I'm out here in the woods, and I don't know how I'm going to get water next week, and I certainly don't know how I'm going to eat. And he's saying, look at me. God made the ground you're standing on. He made the grass that we're walking across. He made the water that we're looking for. He's got you. That's the purpose of Genesis 1 through 2. For us to see that everything that is, is because God made it. And so, if he wants everything to stop being, he can do that. But see, he's not, the reason why the Bible says over and over and over things like, Oh God, I loved your law. Is because every other religion around the children of Israel at that time said that their gods were capricious and angry. 
We didn't know how to make their gods happy. So we would take Virginians and throw them in volcanoes and we would sacrifice children. We would rip the heart. And I'm not exaggerating that we would sacrifice human beings to try to make these gods happy. Because if you don't understand what's going on and you're in an earthquake and you actually see the ground shift in a wave, that's going to flip you out. And so there's clearly a God that we got to make happy. we got to do something to make this God happy. And so what the Bible is saying is, is God is not some crazy dude who we can't understand. And you know what, children of Israel, he loves you. He's got you. That big cloud that we're following, he knows where he's going because he made it all. He made the mountains that we're walking in between. He made the trees that we're walking to. When you walk out of your tent at night, the white stuff that's on the ground called manna, he's going to keep providing it as long as we need it. I love that manna is the Hebrew word for what is this. And that's really what it is. So the children of Israel walked out of their tent the first time, and they're like, what in the world is this? And that's what it was, it was called. It's kind of like a whatchamacallit. It's, they don't know what to call it, so it's what is this. And so there, if we need some meat, God's like, you want some quail? We'll give you some quail. You need some water? Go knock on that rock over there. God's got us. And that's what Moses is trying to teach them, and that's what this story is conveying, and that's what we can take away from it. And when we try to use this text to be a biology textbook, it's not going to work. That's not what it's meant for. When the Bible speaks to science, it's speaking the truth. But we can't warp it into saying stuff it was never meant to say. There's the day-age theory. Um, I I won't go into detail on the loose day-agers. The microevolution, that is the one that Dr. Ross follows. And I, I pulled a quote. At the plant and lower life levels, this is, this is a quote from God and Science uh, website. Um, Therefore, contrary to what many Christians teach, the Bible seems to allow for naturalistic specification of certain kinds of organisms. How much uh, speciation would be allowable according to the biblical account is up to debate. However, the Bible clearly indicates that God directed directly intervened in the creation of certain groups of organisms, the higher mammals, birds, and mankind. And so um, that belief system is that, that each one of those days represents maybe millions of years and that that is God is doing microevolution through those time periods to get us to where we are now. So I, I know that was a lot of information, and I've gone over, and I'm, I apologize for that. Um, again, there's, there's a, a great book to explain. The Sailhammer position is uh, Genesis Unleashed, Unbound. I don't know why I want to change the name of that book. Um, and then Hugh Ross's position is, is, uh, is the one that I said about the universe. Um, Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that we, uh, where your word is silent, we're silent. And when your word speaks, we speak. And Lord, I pray that we would, uh, we would take this text and we would apply it to our lives. And God, that we would remember that you're in control. Lord, as I watch the news uh, and as I, I go through my day-to-day, I, I know that I'm not in control. And so, Lord, I pray that Genesis 1 and 2 for us has been a comfort that... that uh, You promised us and told us that you love us, that you want what's best for us, and that you are God over creation. Thank you.
Thank you for that word. In Jesus' name, amen.